Wow. Richard is so good about being intentional with the music that he picks, isn't he? Uh, I just appreciate the intentionality he always brings to worship. And my wife was showing me the children's program. Andy's program for this month is about courage and was fitting in with that song. She said, oh, it all fits together. And our staff uh, is some of the best I've ever seen and worked with. So we are truly blessed uh, here at Woodmont Baptist Church to have the folks that we do. I hope uh, everybody realizes that. We're starting a new series this month, uh, Be the Church. I'm really excited about it. It's something that I feel really passionate about, not just because I've worked at a church all of my adult life, but because I think it's really important to living the way that God wants us to live. God's covenant, the choir just saying, is a word of life. If we're going to have life from the Lord, it's through his covenant. And we, as the church, are covenant people. To be part of the covenant means to be part of the church. You can't do one without the other. So I'm really excited about this next five weeks together. We'll be talking about, there's five Sundays in October. I love it. We get an extra one for me to talk about this idea. And the impetus for this series really started when our staff has begun meeting to uh, pray together and just dream and just sit in stillness for a minute or two and just listen to the voice of the Lord. Because if we're just going and spinning our wheels and planning things without taking that time to really pray together and dwell in God's word and in his spirit, then what are we doing? Right? We're just trying to, to minister out of our own human abilities and resources, which I, I promise you, at least for me, are very limited. We need the Lord's guidance if we're going to do the right thing and thrive. Right? So we've been doing this praying and, and reading in the word and that kind of thing. And then Richard and I were talking in his office a few weeks ago. And he said, you know, I've been doing all this planning for the 75th anniversary, and we're, we're looking back, we're looking back, we're looking back. He said, what about the future? What are we doing in the future? And he said, you know, what if we did a series like Be the Church? And I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm, I'm thinking, absolutely. And we talked to Trey and Andy and, and Lil and Ron and everybody, Lisa at staff meeting, and everybody's like, yeah, absolutely, this is what we need to do. So we're looking forward now at what are we doing here at Woodmont? What's our, what's our purpose here? Should we just close the doors and pack it up and go home? Or is there something that God has for us here? And if you're like me, then you probably sense that God is up to something, that God's doing something here. And we want to faithfully understand what that is and be a part of it for whatever this season is in Woodmont's life. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not usually comfortable preaching like a topical series or something, preaching on an idea rather than preaching scripture. But my hope and my prayer is that I'm not just preaching this topic of what it means to be church. I, I hope that I'm, I'm looking at five key texts in Scripture and that we'll be learning from the Bible about what God says His people are meant to be. Hopefully that's what we'll be doing these weeks together. Then we won't be wasting our time with what I'm thinking. The doctrine that we're really talking about here is the theological study of the Christian church. The word for that in, in Christian theology is ecclesiology. It comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, which literally means, it's from a, the word ek, which means out from, and kaleo, which means called. The, the ekklesia is the word that the Bible uses in the New Testament to talk about the assembly, the gathering of God's people. And it literally means the called out ones. That's what the church is. Whenever you see the word church in scripture, it's in there 113 times. It's translated as church, and we think, oh, church. But really, it means the, the called out ones. And this is a really tricky task because of all the cultural baggage that we bring to this study, isn't it? 
A lot of us were raised in church, and Woodmont is tucked right here in the center of the buckle of the Bible belt, right? The Christian publishing industry, my parents worked at Lifeway for years and years. It's all centered here, Cokesbury, National Baptist Press, all those things are here in Nashville. Christian music industry is, is all centered here in Nashville. When I went to Australia, they were like, oh, we know Nashville because that's where the Christian artists are. And then there's a church on every corner in Nashville. It's true, isn't it? Maybe two, as in the case of our corner, right? I think Nashville is, is very common. with It's rife with churches, and that's not a bad thing, but we need to understand what we're talking about here when we talk about church and make sure that we are talking about what God is talking about, right? You saw, you know, here in the children's sermon, most of us, if we're honest, when we think about church, we think about buildings, right? We think about the physical location and geographic entity that is a church, right? And, and that's not what the church is, we said. It's the people of God. And then some of us probably think that we've begun to see church maybe as one of many things that we are a part of. When you read an obituary in the newspaper, it says, oh, this person was a Rotarian, and then they were a part of this association, and they were on the board of this, and then they went to this church, and then they did this. You know, it's just something else that you do. It's just another one, you know, thing that we add to our lives. But this series is about being the church everywhere. When you read an obituary, it doesn't say this person was the church. It says they went to this church. We're trying to move away from that idea of just going to church, and how do we embody that to the world? Or maybe for some of us, church is just a social thing. It's where our friends are. I did youth ministry for 12 years, and for a lot of our kids, it was a, a, pretty much just a social thing. It was just where they hung out. They never got below that kind of surface fellowshipy level down to the really core of what it means to be the church on a missional level to the world. And maybe the most dangerous of all these wrong ideas about church is the idea that we are just another provider of religious goods and services. It's so easy to get caught up in that consumer kind of mindset in our culture, isn't it? That we, as a church, are competing with other providers of religious goods and services for the limited resources in Nashville, aka people, so that we can, what, have more people and more money? If you do church that way, then the metrics of success that you look to are just nickels and noses. Or bucks and bums, I've heard that one too, right? Just people and money. That's what you can reduce this thing to. Is that how we measure our effectiveness in the world? Is that how we measure our success? Numbers are souls, I get that. They're people, they're important. But there's got to be more, right? It's so easy to, to fall into any one of these heresies. And they really are heresies. You know, heresies are false doctrines about the church and what it means to be the church. And the truth is this fallen world in which we live in distorts the truth of God's doctrines and we end up falling into all kinds of heresies. But heresy is dangerous, right? As Dr. Sherman pointed out in his amazing sermon last week, our orthodoxy, which is our right belief, and our orthopraxy, which is our right actions, are closely connected, right? Our beliefs about something will affect the way we live and the way we ultimately do things at our homes, at our work, at our school, at our all places of play, everything is affected by what we believe. So I hope that this series is a much needed corrective for all of us to get back to what God says the church is supposed to be and that that will ultimately help us as Woodmont become more the kind of community 
that God has called us to be on this corner and out into the world. And the best way to do that, I'm convinced, is not through some fancy new program of doing church. I don't think we need to, you know, contract with some uh, church growth experts to come in and, and talk about the new trends in church and how to, uh, you know, advertise better and hire a marketing person. I don't think that's the best way to recover what God is talking about when he talks about what it means to be the church here in scripture. I don't think that we, we need to uh, do some postmodern emergent church type thing where we say, oh, here's what the church is doing now. I'm convinced that we need an ancient approach, not a modern approach. I think that we need to begin with what God says in his word about what the church is, how to be the church. And so this morning we start in Genesis. Always a good place to begin, right? The word Genesis means beginning. And we already established in the children's sermon that church is uh, people, right? Both individual groups of people gathered here like at Woodmont Baptist Church and the church universal, God's people throughout time and history and space around the world as the church universal. But this morning we're going to begin to explore some of these fundamental truths that undergird the doctrine of what it means to be the people of God. And we start with a guy named Abraham. I had the honor and the, the pleasure of sitting with some of our front runners at their monthly luncheon, our senior adults, the front runners, a couple weeks ago. And just hearing their life experiences, Richard was there, they were talking about party lines and stuff that I never had experienced. And uh, it was incredible to hear their stories. And Dr. Marianne Pangle, uh, someone told me she's, she's still a professor, she's teaching teachers at TSU in the education department there. And as a good teacher, she cares about her students and she was getting to know them and ask them about what's going on in their lives. And she's had all these Muslim students now. We have the nations coming to Nashville, you know that, right? We are one of the fastest growing ethnically diverse areas. And so she was, as a good teacher, she's a lifelong learner and she's asking them questions about their faith. And she's, she said, you know what is fascinating is that they were telling me that, that Abraham is the father of Islam. They trace Islam back to Abraham, just like Jewish people do and Christians do as well. How many of you grew up singing, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord right arm. Y'all do that? You know that song? VBS? Okay, good. I'm not the only Y'all look at me like I'm crazy. Good. I'm not the only one. It's true, all these faiths trace their roots back to Abraham. This is an important person in scripture, okay? So who is this guy? Abram of Ur, the guy with a two-syllable name from a one-syllable town. Ur was a city in southeast Babylonia. It's near modern-day Baghdad, which, as you know, is hundreds of miles away from Israel, Canaan, the promised land. That's where he was born, and, and then we know from Genesis 11 that his father was a guy named Terah. And that Terah moved to a place called Haran with Lot, who was his, uh, Abraham's nephew. It was his grandson, Terah's grandson. And then Terah dies in Haran, leaving Abram and Lot there. And then that's where we pick it up in Genesis 12. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now Abram hears the voice of God speak to him individually. 
up until this point, Genesis 1 through 11 is all about the cosmic work of God throughout the universe. It begins with creation, and then sin enters the world and plunges that creation into death and darkness and decay. And then Adam and Eve are forced to, to leave the garden and enter the fallen world. And then you have violence increasing on the earth, so much so that God says, enough, and he cleanses the world through a great flood. But he preserves Noah and his family to continue the mission of God in the world. And then violence and wickedness increases again, and people say, we're going to build a tower to literally achieve the greatest heights in the universe and be our own God, even. And God says, enough again, and he scatters them abroad and, and confuses their languages, the Tower of Babel. And that's where we pick it up here in Genesis 12. Something great changes in Genesis 12. Before then, historians call that primeval history. But now God gets specific. God starts dealing with his people on a specific individual level. That's a big deal. The Lord speaks on a personal level to Abram. God's doing something different now. Before, God was dealing with his creation on a cosmic global scale. Now he's dealing with one person. God has not abandoned his beloved creation that is plunged into death now. Instead, he changes his tactics Instead of, of sending a great flood to deal with the sin, now he says, you know what, I'm going to do something through one guy and his family. God creates a special family. This is the, the most dramatic way that God could redeem the world up until the point where he sends his own son at the birth of Christ. That's a big deal in scripture. We see that God does this dramatic move to form a special family for himself that will be called out of the world and set apart to accomplish his mission. Do you see how this is connected to, to church yet? Okay. The Lord calls Abram. Can you imagine being Abram? He, he grew up in this pagan Babylonia place with these false gods who demanded child sacrifice or the crops wouldn't be good enough. And I, I suspect that Abraham knew in the back of his mind that was a bunch of baloney. I think he, he, he knew that, that God had to be something more than that and a good God. And then the Lord triune God of the universe, Yahweh, Jehovah, speaks to him directly and everything changes. The true God who made heaven and earth tells him to go, to leave the three key things that give someone a sense of identity of who they are, his country, his kind of people, and his family. Just go, leave them. God calls us to be on mission for him. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. From now on, the family of God is going to have to fully rely on God to give them that sense of purpose and identity and who they are. Then God tells Abraham to just trust me. He doesn't say, you need to go 400 miles west and then go a little bit south and then cross the river. He says, just go. Trust me. Just go. And I will show you where to go. Abraham is going without knowing. It's a scary thing. This is the beginning of faith. When all other sources of, of identity and help and sustenance are taken away from us, we're forced to ruthlessly trust, right? That's the life of faith that God's people are called to live. This is what life looks like in the family of God. This is why the pastor search committee is taking a whole month to just pray before they look at the resumes because they're going on faith. We walk by faith and not by sight, not as the world does. And then in verse 2, 
God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Again, this is huge. God is promising Abram that he will take care of him, that he will bless him, not just so that Abraham can live this great, comfortable life, so that he will be a blessing. God wants to work through him, right? Have you heard that saying before that God doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the called? It's true, isn't it? God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. He's saying to Abram, I, I, I want you to go, and he calls him to go out. And he says, but I will equip you. I will give you what you need. I will sustain you. I will give you your identity, your purpose. I will be your God, and you will be my family, my people. And it's not just, you know, Abraham's neighbors in Canaan that he's going to be a blessing to. It's not just his family. This is much bigger plan. Look at verse 3. God says to him, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Some versions say all the peoples of the earth or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. God's plan to bring his fallen creation back to himself now is to do it through a family, through a special called out people in the world. This is, his plan is to form these people who will serve as a conduit of blessing to those who desperately need it. His people, his church, are called to be that conduit. And it's not just a family that God's building. He says he'll make them into a great nation. And this is not a nation with political borders or branches of government or something like that. No, this nation will be a universal nation. It'll be every nation, tribe, and tongue throughout time and space. This nation will be unlike any other nation ever before because God is making this new nation out of a new kind of people. He's taking people and calling them not just out of the world, but out of sin and death and darkness. He's calling them to, to be a whole new kind of humanity. That's now the family of God. Do you see how, again, how this is related to church? A whole new way of existing as God's people in the world, a new humanity who are reborn, who are regenerated, though outwardly they are wasting away, inwardly they are being remade day by day. So this is all pointing to the church, but we're not done yet. There's a crucial part to get to in Genesis 15, the covenant that God makes. We haven't even gotten to the covenant. Our title for this morning is to be covenant people. The choir just sang about this covenant of promise, right? So what happens after God calls Abram? He obeys. He is going, not knowing, to the promised land. He and his barren wife, Sarah, who can't have kids, and his nephew, Lot, set out on this journey, and all their servants, and they, they don't just go straight to Canaan, do they? They sojourn down in Egypt, and all kinds of disaster befalls them. And then they cross the desert. He separates from Lot, and then he comes across this mysterious prophet, priest, and king named Melchizedek. We learn later in Hebrews that Jesus was in the order of Melchizedek, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, right? And he blesses Abraham through God's blessing. And then God establishes his covenant here in chapter 15 with Abraham, his faithful promise to him that he initiates in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household 
will be my heir. You see, sometimes when we obey God, just because you step out in faith doesn't mean that God gets on your schedule, right? Just because you obey doesn't mean, okay, God, now what? What do you owe me? The older son in the prodigal son story says, God, you never even gave me a goat to have a party. Well, a goat is a really lame party, okay? There's not a lot of meat on a goat, right, Logan, when you ate that goat? It's, yeah, it's gross, lame, right? You wanna, the fattened calf is what God wants to give us. But just because the older son was obedient, felt like the, God, that the father owed him something. God doesn't owe us anything. God is God. And we remain earthen vessels that God has breathed life into. That is all we are. And God is God. It's never a good idea to tell God what will happen either, is it? Abram says, Eliezer will be my heir. God says, he will not be your heir. Look at verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Abram, you are wrong. You have no clue what you're talking about. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them, which of course is impossible. My son tried it one time. Didn't work out so well. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, limitless. Your family that I'm creating will be more numerous than the stars. And he believed the Lord, the faith of Abram, and the Lord counts it to him as righteousness. This is a big deal. Not only is it the covenant that God's establishing with Abram about his, his family and his descendants forever, but the apostle Paul picks up on this 2,000 years later in the letter to the Romans, chapter 4, and says this is what makes people right before God. Faith in God's ability to do through them what God says he will do through them. When we trust that God can take away our sins, that he can forgive us and make us whole and right, that is salvation. Grace through faith is what that means. This is why in verse 6 here in chapter 15, God says that he counted it to Abram as righteousness, his trust in God's power to produce the results in him that God says he can do is what makes him right with God. And that is how God's people today are to live trusting in God's ability to do through us what he says he can do. The New Testament makes this clear. We're going to finish in Galatians here. That Abraham's example is for us to follow today. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. To be justified means to be made right, to be before the high and holy God of the universe in righteous standing. In our old fleshly way of living that was impossible because we try to be good enough to meet God's standards and we are incapable of meeting those standards. We fall on our face and all have fallen and are, are fall short of the glory of God, right? We've all sinned. Romans 3.23. So now, Christ's atoning death and sacrifice pays the debt that we could not have ever paid on our own and makes us right with God forever. That's the gospel. Look at four verses later in 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead to myself. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, I know that some folks take Genesis 12 and 15 to, as to only be relating to Jewish people because it's Old Testament. It's Abram. It's not us. Now, we're the people of Jesus, right? This is just Old Testament stuff. No, Paul makes it clear here in Galatians that the promises that were made to Abram, the covenant that was made with Abram, is totally 100% applicable to the people of God, the church, today. Look at chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith in Christ, is what it means, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We who have faith in Christ are blessed indeed. Our sins are forgiven. We are washed clean in the blood of Christ. We are blessed beyond measure. And we are not blessed so that we can live comfortably or so we can sit around until we get our reward. We are blessed for a reason. We're blessed to be a blessing. Paul says here the gospel is that God is bringing his good news to the nations. So the key for us is how. How is God bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth? Through his people. Through his called, equipped, and covenantal people. That's us. That's us now. We are Abraham's family. Look at verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Could it be any clearer? If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise, the promise that was made back in Genesis 12 and 15. How many of you like to cook? Anybody like to cook here? My wife's a great cook. She loves cooking. How many of you know what a sieve is? You know what a sieve is? Right? It's a broad term that covers a lot of different things. Colanders, sifters, right? These are all, you know, slotted spoons. Those are all sieves, right? They're all used for a purpose. And you know what happens when you pour something through a sieve? Things that are smaller that go through the holes, through the mesh, go through it, and things that are bigger stay in it. Some of what you pour stays in the sieve, and some goes through it, right? We know that for those of us who are in Christ, God's covenantal people, God's promises to bless us, to pour out his unbelievable blessings and love on us have come to pass. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what's the difference between a sieve and a bowl? If you pour something into a bowl, where does it go? Well, if your bowl is a good bowl and not leaky, then it all stays right there in the bowl. The question for us today is not whether God has blessed us or not. God has blessed us indeed. The question is, are we a sieve or a bowl? Are we allowing this love that God has poured into us to go through us and be a conduit to the rest of the world? Or are we just a bowl who's hoarding all of God's blessings for us so we can just sit comfortably until we get our own reward? I'm telling you, the way that God wants his church to exist is as a sieve, as a conduit of blessing to the rest of the world. On Monday night this week, I was here to, to see Eddie Chisholm's testimony 
And uh, as, I, as I walked in late, I had, my son had a soccer game. As I walked in late, I, I had no idea where you guys were meeting. I didn't get the memo on where they were. I should have looked it up. This church is huge, right? So I, I ran to the fellowship hall, and there were about 30 Boy Scouts in there. They were all working on badges and hanging out and talking. And I was like, oh, that's right. I forgot. We have a, a Boy Scout troop that's been meeting here for like 50 years or something. We've had these Boy Scouts here for decades. Great program. It was amazing to see that. And then I said, well, well maybe they're, they're down this other hall. And I ran down the hall, and I heard voices. And I saw some of our church members tutoring Swahili children in this room. I said, that's amazing. They're giving other time to help these kids with their schoolwork and their homework. And then I finally found you guys up on the third floor uh, in the, the pier, the youth area, and I was blown away. There were about 50 people gathered at Celebrate Recovery, an amazing ministry. And, and some of them were addicts. Some of them were homeless. Some of them were deacons in our church who just love Eddie and were there to support him and encourage him and cheer him on as he shared his testimony bravely and, and, and wide openly with the rest of us. That's what it means to be the church. Yesterday, about 30 of us got together at, at this, this wonderful ministry, Habitat for Humanity, and our church sponsors a build uh, in, in Laverne area of Nashville. We have some pictures of that, I think, Mark. Do we have some of, this is incredible. I got blisters on my hand today, and I'm sore. It was so fun, though. Here's our group here at the build site. It was just a slab when we got there, and then when we finished, it was, there's the, the slab. When we finished, it was, the walls were up. That's what the finished product looks like. Yeah. Way to go, guys. That's what it means to, to be the church. This woman from Somalia named Rukia and her daughter will have a home because of what God is doing through Woodmont Baptist Church. To be the church means to pass on the amazing covenantal blessings with which we have been blessed to others. And the next week we'll unpack more of what that looks like to be the covenantal people of God who bless others in the world. We'll be unpacking that all throughout October. But I invite you this morning, if, if you are struggling with this idea, don't be a bull, be a sieve. Let God's blessings flow through you into others and see how you thrive and live the way that God called you to live. And the question for us as Woodmont is, are we being a blessing to others? Is Green Hills a better place because of us? Do we bless our neighbors? Do we allow God's amazing blessings of Christ to flow through us into those who need it the most? And the invitation is for everyone. Would you consider, if you've never joined your life to Christ, surrendering everything to him today and to step out in faith like Abraham did and surrender your life to Christ and join the body of believers, the church, and get on this team and play your part. You are each individually members of the body. We need all hands on deck. And maybe you have never joined a, a church before, but you're a Christian, but you've never really committed your life to a body of believers. This is a team sport. Again, Woodmont's not a perfect church, but we would love to have you do life with us here together and be the church in our community. Or maybe you, you found some calling here and some peace here and you want to join Woodmont from another church. Whatever it is this morning, the decision that you need to make, this is the time to do so. We invite you as we stand and sing to consider how God can use you as a sieve this week. Who is God calling you to bless throughout your life? Let us stand and sing, Jesus is Lord of all.